Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. You're back. I'm back. I'm so happy you're back. <laughs> I'm happy I'm back too. Never um, leave me again. Okay. I had some very nice guests, but it's just not the same. Well, that's um, that's beautiful to hear. I love being yeah. missed. Yeah. It's what you do, you just disappear as often so that we can miss you and then absence makes the heart grow fonder and you're like, I'm back and everyone's like, Yay, Janine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I was hoping for. Yeah, sorry, I had to take yeah. some time to huddle under a blanket. It's for necessary. several weeks, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I would also say that if anybody can hear a strange noise and are wondering what is rumbling inside their head slash earphone slash house, it is Livia who has decided to stand as close to the microphone as she can and purr as loudly as possible. Because <laughs> Livia loves podcasting. She does love podcasting. I think it's because I'm not really on Instagram anymore and she misses all of the attention that she gets on there. So now she's um, just trying right. to horn in on everything so that people can she be will. reminded that she, yeah. By hook or by crook, be a famous internet pet. She's, she's going to be a famous internet cat whether I like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, so that's what that weird noise is. Any other weird noises are the storm that's currently happening outside of both yeah, of our houses. It's extremely um, windy out there. Yeah. So just ignore those. It's fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about the Dark Ages today or why we think some periods of history are more crap than other periods of history. Yeah, which is kind of pertinent when you feel like we're living through a particularly crap period of history. Yeah. This question is from Tammy Corkish, who asked there, why do we think some periods of history are crappier than others? And then very conveniently narrowed it down by specific saying, why do we think the Dark Ages were dark? And what were the Middle Ages in the middle of? Mm. Which is a nice specific question. That is a nice that specific I like question. To answer. Yeah. yeah. My understanding was always that the Dark Ages were actually just a period where we don't have a lot of records of. It is one of the reasons, kind of the backronym version of understanding <laughs> it. Uh-huh. In that the term the Dark Ages was very definitely invented to describe a period that everyone thought was very shit. Yes retrospectively thought was shit but it's kind of stuck and it's really hard to get rid of a label once it's stuck like you can keep saying early medieval period as much as you like but most yeah. people are still going to insist upon calling like an entire millennium the dark ages yeah. and so because you know what it's catchy it is very catchy and people have i'll get to the other uh, kind of floated versions of what people describe try to describe it as earlier like the the contenders for what we were going to call it <laughs> but yeah so i think a lot of historians of the period and historians of history have been like look okay everyone's going to call it this anyway and it is a period where there is much less in the way of source material mm-hmm. for a lot of it particularly kind of the very early part and so okay fine we will accept the term but just redefine it and say it's about lack of source material rather right. than <laughs> rather than everybody was a pig person living in mud and weeping yeah which is one of those things that comes up often in rex factor right like this king we know a lot or queen we know lots about because they hired a historian to write down everything yeah. they did and then this king <laughs> did not so we don't really know anything <laughs> So we have absolutely no idea what they did. Yeah, like the classic from Rex Vander is IF, a guy who's only known from one <laughs> sentence in a chronicle. Yeah, because <laughs> you have to actually get someone in there to write down your stuff if you want people to yeah. know about your stuff. 
Yes, and they didn't because what they were doing largely instead, and this is where the real problem for everybody post about 1750 occurs, is that they were writing church stuff. Mm. Because for what the period... So the period, initially, when people say the Dark Ages, quote-unquote, they are referring to either uh, the entirety of the thousand years between 400 and 1400 (laughs) in Europe. This is all Europe. Like, just the rest of the world does not exist as far as the people who talk about history, (laughs) this this kind of history (laughs) is concerned. Like, they're absolutely fundamentally uninterested in what is happening on any other continent. So we're entirely talking about Europe. So So that was what it was initially developed as. So when... People like Voltaire start talking about the Dark Ages. That's they're talking about a thousand year period, mm-hmm. and it's kind of been gradually chipped away at. And now, when people say it, they usually mean between about four hundred and nine hundred. So, kind of right. ending with the the Holy Roman Empire really taking off. But sometimes they don't even mean that. Sometimes they're only talking about England. And when they talk about the Dark Ages, that they specifically mean is the Anglo-Saxon period between about 450 (laughs) and... 1066. And that's a period that you see in Monty Python's sketches all the time, you know, yes. like like a little hovel. Everything's muddy and brown. Everything is muddy and brown. Yeah. Everybody's just rolling around in their sad brown clothes. I feel like the image sad. of it comes almost exclusively from comedy sketches. It often does, yes. <laughs> or when people think of it, they think of, like, the first thing that I think of when I think of like the dark ages or that kind of monty python i'm being help help i'm being oppressed era <laughs> is that life was nasty poor brutish and short from thomas hobbes yeah and this idea that civilization makes life none of those things <laughs> and that it was an uncivilized time basically it's like there's this cultural separation of because we've talked before like when we talked about the vikings and stuff about the periods of like the historical records that are about connecting the real present or the tangible history with the mythological past and it feels like the english tradition uses the dark ages as a cutoff point like the arthurian legends are like before this right like as romans like christianity is coming in but paganism is still around everything is is beautiful but and magical and then you have rational england starting in 1066 and then there's this block between where there's no camelot and there's no norman kings so it's just muddy yeah and everything becomes beautiful and french and wonderful Mm. and the harrying of the north and all the rest of it doesn't count but yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so that is largely how people imagine it and basically and what you find a lot is what people talk about a lack of reason a focus on faith and the church nobody can read everyone thinks the earth is flat everyone Mm -hmm. dies at 22 from the plague probably no one's washing everyone's teeth are falling out all the time everyone's disgusting yeah yes and the church is burning anybody who tries to like learn to read or do medicine or (laughs) think outside of do what your priest tells you basically mm-hmm. i found some good quotes one of them comes from eleni anager's blog because she found a good one a founder of an energy innovation company i don't know what that is <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but i'm sure he does very important work <laughs> 
But he says that the Dark Ages is a time without respect for knowledge and without respect for science. The whole idea of progress requires objectively looking at problems, finding and suggesting solutions, and then spreading and using the best of them. And that is apparently what people in the Dark Ages didn't do. This is the way people always think, right? Like, we look, we now look at like pre-invention of the microscope science as like unscientific and like yeah. grounded in superstition and and all of this when when it was in reality the science of the day using the equipment that they had access to and it wasn't we are not smarter and more committed to rational thought now than people have been before we just know a few more things because the world yeah. is older and we've learned more and we have different frameworks of, of thinking yeah. about it. I also have this, which I think is potentially like the best quote because it's from Shakira. <laughs> and I don't know who I trust more um, <laughs> to tell me about the Dark Ages than Shakira. Well, you know, her hips don't lie, so... Her hips would not lie to me and neither would her lips. But she describes the Dark Ages as humanity somehow managed to forget about itself. We put God in the centre of society and people forgot about their own nature and desires and there was a huge deal of repression. Sure. So that's what people think the Dark Ages is. It is not that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to do like a big takedown of how the dark ages actually were not that bad they were just sort of a normal period of history but what i am going to say is the thing that people get really hit up about a lot is the centrality of the church and the idea that the church in big capital letters is a uh, inherently repressive mm-hmm. and that there is no intellectual engagement with anything because the church is completely stifling all thought and you just are not allowed to do anything which completely eliminates one monasteries as spaces of learning and nunneries as spaces Uh of learning and also the whole idea of theology as an area in which people think theology is just a form of philosophy with a very specific ontology yeah it is not a a thing where people don't think people are thinking very very hard about difficult subjects it's just that those difficult subjects involve things like the nature of god and the nature of humanity and for some reason that is not allowed to be considered intellectual intellectual engagement yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) and therefore thomas aquinas is somehow just written off as not doing anything and philosophy doesn't exist until kant but There is a huge amount of intellectual work going on and there actually are a huge amount of sources and writing from the entire period from 400 onwards. It's just that the sources that you've got are sources about the church and produced by the church. They are things like liturgy. They are things like theology. They are things like church chronicles. They are things which are about stuff that is not secular politics and therefore is considered to be uninteresting or is considered to be irrelevant to history when actually they're producing a lot of beautiful stuff. Yeah. Just it doesn't tell us what King was doing what and where an army was. Which, which to be honest, I don't really care about anyway. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but people who like to write histories do. Yeah. So we're now going to talk a bit about where these ideas come from and why the whole notion of that period where the church is the the major power structure is considered to be intellectually barren and also then we're going to talk a bit about whether people during that time thought that they lived in a shit time Mm -hmm. does that sound fun 
That sounds great. Good. It all begins, and I find this very funny, in the 1300s with Petrarch when he invents the term Dark Ages. And this is very funny because 99.9% of people, if you ask them when the Dark Ages were, would definitely include the 1300s. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like your average person off the street would probably stop it at the first monarch they can think of, which is probably (laughs) Henry VIII. Yeah, possibly. Queen Victoria. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I would be interested to poll people and be like, you know, where do you think the Dark Ages ended and see? Because so far, you know, you'd find people who'd be like 900. Yeah. And would have a cut off their kind of Carolingian Renaissance kind of stuff. And then you would have some people who would say 1066 and be like, well, the French came and civilized United England. England. <laughs> yeah, and did like brutalized everybody. So obviously that's when it <laughs> ended. Us and how knew... to say beef. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All the important words. <laughs> and um some people would say the Italian Renaissance, which is, you know, the 30 late 1300s, and some people would say the Enlightenment, which is the 17 1800s. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have a lot of people and then some people would be huffy and be like we're still in the dark ages. <laughs> And those people will be on Reddit. (laughs) Yeah, because it's an imaginary term that is made up. And it is made up specifically by people who either believe that they are or that they are creating a light ages. Mm. And Petrarch basically defines how we're going to think about it because he is one of the first people to visit Rome and decide that it was the best place in the entire world. He visits Rome because he, in 1341, because he's being made the poet laureate of the Holy Roman Empire, mm-hmm. which is pretty so good. So he's probably going to think pretty kindly about the whole Roman project. He does, but more than anything, he thinks really kindly about the ancient Roman project mm-hmm. and all of the stuff that you can still see banging around all over Rome, like the Colosseum and all of the ruins, and which have largely been, during the intervening periods, kind of incorporated into a growing modern city. Mm. But he really loved all of that ancient stuff and writes about walking around. And at the same time that he is doing that, he is living through and is kind of leading the Italian Renaissance, mm-hmm. which is involving the uncovering of an awful lot of Greek philosophy and Latin writing being translated and reappearing out of monasteries for for the first time. And he's reading Cicero and reading Plato and Aristotle, which has come through the Arabic libraries, and is like, oh my God, the guys are great. It was life was obviously much better then because all of my peers are shit. <laughs> Uh, and he writes a book called uh, On Illustrious Men, of glorious men from all eras, but very specifically focusing on Roman men like Cicero and Virgil. And he writes a lot about how everything after the decline of basically Republican Rome, mm-hmm. <laughs> so everything since the death of Cicero, although he eventually expands that to the death of Titus. So Domitian causes the Dark Age. So that's like, when is that? 81? 81 CE. Mm-hmm. He, he thinks everything after 81 is, is a Dark Age. <laughs> he considers it to be impaired, debilitated and consumed by the hands of barbarians. Uh-huh. And because basically nobody is Cicero anymore. Sure. I mean, that will happen. Once the Cicero is gone, yeah. they don't come um, back. Cicero would have been very pleased by that. 
<laughs> and he considers history and the entire purpose of his history and his writings and it really his life to be the praise of ancient Rome. Uh-huh. That he considers that time, particularly the time of uh, the late Republic and Augustus, to be a time of light and reason and of, of understanding and glorious thought, basically, and everything else to be miserable stupidity. And he is the first person to separate the world into a light time where people were humanistic and delightful and a declined and barbarous time, which is after Rome. Um, So he is the first person to separate European history into a time of Roman glory and a time of non-Roman nightmares. Right. So he is, Um, it's really him, the end point of, this theory on his part is that it's him yes all the boys on tiktok can't stop thinking (laughs) about the roman empire right so he thinks that he is going to be leading the charge he considers all of his friends uh, and colleagues and everybody that he knows and the rome that he visits he doesn't live there he just visits a couple of times to be um to eat to still be barbarous and and terrible but he considers himself to be leading the charge into a new age of 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 light um and and classical glory right and so he is also therefore introduces the concept of a middle ages because what the middle ages is the time between the fall of rome uh, and the rise of this new enlightened age sure of I which mean, he is the, the main guy. Right. Yes. And a surprising amount of people are like, you know what? That seems like I'm totally with you on this. Actually, <laughs> I do really like how the Coliseum looks and I do enjoy reading Cicero. And Virgil is lovely. Uh, and we are discovering all of this stuff because this is around about the time when they start going around monasteries, when people start, you know, people with independent income start going around and digging about in the archives of monasteries and being like oh hey they've been copying out this stuff for ages because you know what people in the churches knew full well <laughs> that it was good stuff <laughs> they just weren't telling anybody else but they were very diligently and repeatedly copying out you know the works of Tacitus and the works of Virgil over and over again without just not mentioning it to people like Petrarch for reasons that he finds very offensive <laughs> It feels like there was just this period of time when um, if you were a scholarly person and that's what you wanted your pursuit in life to be is sort of academia, then there was one place to do it and that was the church. Yeah. And you could just Um, spend your entire time pottering around giant libraries and reading books and copying them out and and having intense discussions about about life and the nature of God or whatever. The nature of God. Yeah. yeah, the Trinity, and uh, which are fun questions to think about. They are and, fun like, questions. So, like, I guess if you... exegesis is fun. Yeah. You just don't like the avenue where those things are being discussed. You have to make your own club, and he just made that everyone else's problem instead of just starting his own. Yeah, he did. So, yeah, uh, and conveniently for him, he just ever so slightly was the kind of the cusp of church reformation, the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, the rise of humanism, these new ideas that basically start the dismantling of the Catholic Church as the one the mm-hmm. one focus of religious power throughout the 15 1600s so and they are all of these people who are um, reformers church reformers and eventually protestants a lot of them 
very strongly agree with the notion that the Catholic Church is is repressive and corrupt and therefore they destroyed classical culture. Sure. And so that kind of the initial cleansing of the church of, of corruption and then the Protestant Reformation and things like that all mean that people who have left the Catholic Church and people who want to reform the Catholic Church are very happy to describe the entire period from about three 12 onwards from the conversion of Constantine <laughs> all the way through to their own time, whenever that might be, as an age of superstition and repression and corruption that has <laughs> held everybody back, whereas they are now freeing everybody from the superstition and corruption of the church and therefore everybody should follow them. And you get lots of histories and the theologies and pamphlets and, and a lot of culture emerging which talks about these things would you like to hear some other descriptors for the entire age of the catholic church in europe yes so options are the barbarous age <laughs> these are the ones didn't catch on unfortunately uh, the obscure <laughs> age which doesn't roll off the tongue the leaden age which i quite like that's pretty good yeah. Yeah. The Monkish Age. <laughs> the Monkish Age just sounds lovely <laughs> because it just makes you think of like gentlemen in brown robes yeah. tending to a garden. You know, whenever I think of monks, especially monks like copying out manuscripts or like making in like like what they called like the illuminated um, manuscripts, I always just think mm -hmm. of the ones that have like drawn bums on the side. <laughs> and it, or the ones that are like I'm so hungover and they will write it down the edge <laughs> and just the little doodles that you get on manuscripts of, of monks that don't want to be doing what they're doing right now or who are just doodling a bum or a penis or somebody doing a handstand on the side or a little soft portrait or whatever I love it <laughs> It's so good. Yeah so the monkish age the gothic period which is quite specific I mean that seems like that seems fraught with with difficulty because the goths were a, a people yeah and who did things so it's, i feel like that one has to be specifically describing italy but even then like the goths are not in power that long although you can imagine it as a time when like the cure ruled the entirety of europe <laughs> yeah that would which be, would more be really fun and my personal all-time favorite because i think that this one would really catch on specifically with people like Ali from Rex Factor, the muddy ages. <laughs> I mean, that is what people think they are. It is. So they mean muddy in the sense of like obscurity and like you can't really see, <laughs> but the muddy ages is exactly what people think of it. And like, you know, nobody cleaned yeah. their teeth and just pissed on themselves. And the streets are just full of horse shit all the time. Yeah. Yes. I will say, I can't remember if it was shared yet, but beloved Danny Lavery. Mm hmm wrote a thing on his Substack recently which was uh, just a kind of essay and bullet points about how people in the past wanted to be clean like how to improve your historical period drama just dear god show somebody <laughs> being clean <laughs> yeah they knew about brushing their yeah, teeth yeah somebody had to wash the buckets oh. <laughs> <laughs> which is a delight and everybody should just read everything that Danny Lavery writes because he is brilliant he is brilliant. Which brings us through, so we've gone through 
Petrarch has invented it. Everybody has kind of caught on with it because they were like, yes, everything definitely was better in the past when Cicero could write that he didn't believe in the gods and Seneca could say yeah, make, whatever. Make Europe Roman again. Yeah, make Europe Roman again is basically what they are trying to do. And or, while also simultaneously making it less Roman by attempting to break up the church. <laughs> <laughs> Be more Roman, but not like that. <laughs> Do the Roman stuff we like. Yeah, exactly. We've got a very specific idea of what we like about the Romans. Interestingly, <laughs> for a long time before this, like the Romans, the idea that everybody had about the Romans was that they were very, very decadent because the only real ideas that had survived were about the kind of decadent Roman princes and Nero mm -hmm. and Caligulas and the kind of memories of what Rome was like was that were Christian ideas and Christian descriptions and all of those like Tertullian and Augustine and people writing about the end of the Roman Empire occurring because God was so unhappy and cross with the because they were yeah. so decadent and they would shag everything that moved and they were just eating all the time and which really starts with Paul right you yeah. read the book of Romans which is Paul writing to the early Roman Christians and the, and the whole book is like what is this mad place? <laughs> you are all going to hell. Yeah. Don't do anything. Don't stop doing things. Exactly. And yeah. and then you get loads of stuff in like the fourth and fifth century when non-Roman people start like uh, turning up in towns. Then you find people trying to write. Like Paulinus of Nola writes a thing about how he is trying to understand why Rome fell or like mm -hmm. was was sacked by the Goths. And his only way that he can really wrap his head around it and how he can explain it to people is that God is punishing evil and the Romans were evil. And yeah. it wouldn't, God wouldn't allow this to happen if, um, and he wouldn't allow non-Roman people to come in and live next door to you uh, if it wasn't <laughs> that God was punishing us. If we were good and we didn't sleep with yeah. our enslaved handmaidens, then uh, God wouldn't do this to us. Therefore, that that's the only way. That, and so that is the understanding of Rome that, that has been prominent throughout the early medieval period. Yeah. And so this re-understanding of Rome is actually a place of Cicero and Virgil and white men in white togas walking around being very clever at each other. It's quite mm. a radical re-understanding of the Roman world <laughs> and the idea that they might want to be like that instead of being good Christians is quite a radical re-understanding of what people think the world should be. Rather than just being obedient to God and not being probably didn't help that God did not under any circumstances stop them from killing each other when they were being good Christians. <laughs> <laughs> Disappointing of him, really. Uh, <laughs> yes, which kind of brings us through. So we go through all of that and we get to the Enlightenment, the world's most irritatingly <laughs> named period of intellectual history. <laughs> Because it's, I mean, it's appropriate though, because it's full of the most irritating people. It is. Have you ever seen a picture of Voltaire? No, but I'm going to look, look up, up Voltaire. Up. I mean, I probably have, but I don't, not to remember. And tell me how bad you want to punch him in the face. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is someone who needs to be shoved in a locker. Like, oh, it's just got such a smug little face. Like, you just want to... Yeah. I feel very similarly about him that I do about Cicero, in fairness, which is that I <laughs> do just want him to stop being so bloody pleased with himself. <laughs> and you're like, yes, fine, you're very good at thinking and talking, but also... Ugh. <laughs> yeah, so 
We come to the, the Enlightenment period, this period of intellectual history, which emerges out of like the Renaissance and the Reformation um, and various other things and comes through the scientific revolution. So the beginning of people starting to do things like really studying anatomy, inventing the microscope, doing physics, um, doing things that we've talked about before were being done heartily in the Arab world and kind of eventually <laughs> leaked into Europe again uh, or leaked uh -huh. into Europe for the first time. People like Newton and, and things like that um, are around at this time, discovering things, writing big scientific treaties, just like founding the Royal Society of Science. Um, the um, You've got Descartes at the beginning of the 17th century doing I Think Therefore I Am and John Locke and all of these people basically around and about having mm -hmm. big thoughts and about politics and hanging out in coffee houses and stuff like that. Um, right. And all of this may start to make people think that they're the friggin' best. And obviously <laughs> their period is the best period and us guys are the best guys. And you get... People like Voltaire come out of this. He is an everything man. He is a historian. -ish. He is a, a philosopher. He writes plays. He does witty things. He shags women. He moves around. He writes polemics, writes novels. He does everything that you could ever want a man to do, uh, except <laughs> not look irritating. <laughs> His real name is Francois-Marie just so that we're clear. Um, he called himself Voltaire, which is also irritating. Oh, he just made that up. <laughs> he did. And there's like lots of, like nobody can work out where Voltaire came from. And mm. I read one thing that was like, oh, we think it might be a kind of anagram of his surname, which is Arouette. And then the first two letters of Lejeune. So just like an L and also an I. Uh -huh. So, um, like he, it's it's just his surname mixed up. So it's like an even worse version of Lord Voldemort. <laughs> he tried to get to an anagram, but he couldn't find a good one, so he had to just import some other. So he letters. imported some other random letters, and and it's somehow even even shitter than than Voldemort. There are other theories <laughs> uh, as to where it may have come from, but nobody really knows why he called himself Voltaire. He just did. He decided that that's what everyone was going to call him. And then he started just going around being that guy. And and since then, everyone's just accepted yeah. it. Sure. Yeah. So there's a kind of a, you know, in European history, it's certainly an interesting period to be because there is a whole lot of people writing things pamphlets and uh, if you are interested in arguing with people then it's a great time to be alive because everybody is arguing with everybody constantly and to be fair it is like just from a, a very current political perspective there is something nice about looking back on a society where farting around and thinking thoughts <laughs> was seen as valuable yeah. in this era where we currently have people talking about how we need to strip the humanities of all their funding and, and get people into like useful degrees like business and, and coding and what, whatever. And no one wants to, everyone thinks that there's no value in studying English or studying philosophy, which feels extremely grim in dark ages of us. It's, it is, you look back on a, 
on a period where it was like, yeah, no, the most important men are just the ones who who read a lot and write a lot and, and think think their thoughts, which seems nice, except that the current, like the modern equivalent of this feels very much like libertarians on Reddit, <laughs> you know, who are like debate me. Debate me. Assholes, you yeah, know? they are fight me guys. And also they're pretty much all just rich guys. So it is a world in which it is cool for very rich men with, you know, whose parents are paying for everything or who own land yeah. to meander around Europe chatting to one another and being like, no, I am the most reasonable. No, I am the most reasonable. It just kind of bums me out that when we made that level of education more available and more necessary unfortunately as well we also made it so like it's it never became open to everyone in the way that we like to think that it is because it's so expensive it is to go now it is so like the ideal as as we got more sensible about classism and wealth disparities the ideal would just be like let everyone do this. Yes, that would you be know, the idea. Socialize if you want to do it. Farting around for a few years, sitting sitting around and chatting shit with your friends about philosophy, yeah. and don't force everyone into fucking business degrees yes. because they're supposedly useful. Unfortunately, this period where you've got people like Voltaire hanging out with Kant and Hume and Perrault and all the rest of them declaring themselves to be very smart and eventually leading to revolutions all over the world. They are also describing themselves as the most smart because they are the most rational. And it is that elevation of reason and rationality over and above anything else that has eventually led to this idea that having a feeling is very bad and inherently feminine and that you have to become an automaton in order to have a job. (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, we could could have done without that. But yeah, it's a fun time if you're a rich guy who likes to think. (laughs) And Voltaire is a rich guy who likes to think and he likes to think about history he is one of the first people to engage with history as a literary endeavor and as something which is more than just copying out sources talking about kings which is interesting Mm -hmm. that is and he does start a kind of a movement within the writing of history where he looks at you know does source analysis unfortunately he completely considers the middle ages and what he considers to be the dark ages to be a horrible and degrading barbarism of absolutely no reason because he hates Catholicism and he hates religious doctrine and he hates absolute power. They're like very against absolute monarchy, but he hates Catholicism. His understanding of Catholicism is largely through the lens of what is happening in Europe during his time, which is things like the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre Uh and the actual execution of both Protestants and Catholics of various flavours for being Protestants and Catholics. So he has a fairly good reason to hate everybody. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that is fair. If everyone is just killing each other, yes. it's it's normal to want to distance yourself um, from that. And the idea of tolerance is something that he and his contemporaries are very into. Like he praises everybody for, for religion. And, you know, this is where the whole idea of tolerating one another comes from, mm-hmm. even though... And, has been said by many people before me and many people after me that tolerance feels like a low bar, just not killing one <laughs> <Yeah>. another. <laughs> but uh, but it's that's where he was willing to start and that's fine. So he considers himself and his contemporaries to be bringing about 
the age of reason and the age of rationality mm-hmm. and the age of light, the enlightenment through the use of reason and through the analysis and questioning and individual power. Mm-hmm. And he drives that and you get lots and lots of very fun people saying things like the medieval Europe. So they, they consider... They would consider Petrarch to be very much in the bad times. The (laughs) medieval Europe to be a sick man who has forgotten the work that he had started in good health. So he was a a healthy man who did loads of stuff during the Roman period and then became very ill and is now having Uh to redo all of the work that he did. So that's Fontenelle. (laughs) Perrault said that arts and sciences were happily flowing as a river during the ancient classical Roman period and then came up again to chasm and disappeared. So there was no Uh art or science for the entire period up until his own time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Baron de Longaspear said that the West suddenly saw itself enveloped in the heavy shadows of barbarity and ignorance, which lasted until the recovery of those ancients whose loss was followed by an inevitable collapse in the arts and sciences. Hmm. And so they're not... So because... We stopped reading um, Cicero. C- yeah, Cicero in the old <laughs> plays. Uh, we lost everything, yeah. lost our minds. Right. Basically. Yeah. And they very much paint the whole period as before themselves as being unreasonable, barbarous, dark, stupid, authoritarian, controlled by monarchs who they despise and a church whom they despise and they you know these are the ideas which eventually end up with the french revolution and then with the american revolution and the development of Mm -hmm. constitutions that talk about you know each man has the right to pursue liberty and happiness and whatever sorry americans i've forgotten the exact wording of your thingy but we don't have. You one. also called it a thingy. I did call which it is a outstanding. De- Declaration of Independence. Yeah, <laughs> there's no um, reason why I, an English person, should know. Life, liberty, and the p- pursuit of happiness. Yeah, that'll be it. I think is what um, it is. I only really know the pursuit of happiness bit properly because of that terrible Will Smith film. Oh yeah, I never saw it. It looked terrible. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, you know, I, I feel like I already know enough about American history. It's fine. <laughs> If they can come and tell me what the Magna Carta says, then we'll have a good agreement. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, England managed to avoid all of this. The Magna Carta basically says, King John, stop being such a dipshit. Yes. I saw Magna Carta the other day. Huh. I was in London and I went to that exhibition of fantasy literature at the British Library. And then <laughs> for the first time, I actually went to that kind of permanent exhibition of the treasures of the British Library that they have. Yeah. And they've just got Magna Carta there. Like, oh, that's nice. They've uh, With like original seals and stuff. It's that is very, very that cool. That is very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I had never really occurred to me. They was just hanging out there in a place I go all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So you can just pop in and see it for free. That's uh, nice. It's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, so when Americans can talk to me about that, then we'll, I'll remember <laughs> the words of their declaration. But that's where this is leading, basically. Like the, <laughs> it's, it's that, That's what they want. And they consider the time before themselves and their newfound understanding and and of the world and their beginning of dismantling theological worldviews because you know the uh, theories of gravity the development of algebra the all the stuff that that Newton and, and his contemporaries are doing is just changing the way that people see the world yeah 
and is dismantling the the chokehold that Christianity has on paradigms of where the earth sits in everything Mm. in ways that are new and exciting. But the fact that the Romans knew about planets, therefore, is mind-blowing to them. (laughs) And they think that it's brilliant. And so the Middle Ages is developed as a time of loss and misery and lack of reason and sadness and mud people who don't clean their teeth. Mm. And that is basically because so much of the modern world is derived from that, from these guys, and so much of the world that we live in, which is still very much based on their ideas of what is important and individuality and things like that, that is basically still the process of history that Europe and America, which is derived from Europe, will learn. Mm. I read a very fun and interesting thing by an Australian writer who was right saying that where he grew up learning about the Enlightenment and learning about this period of, of history as being fundamentally important for all men in the entire world and the 1700s being a vitally thrilling and exciting time that everyone should know about from Australia when Australian history during that period is not, you know, 1700 or 1726 or whatever in Australia is not a time when you're talking about the thrills of intellectual engagement. You're talking about (laughs) colonization. You're talking about genocide. You are talking about most of the people who are in Australia are either soldiers or people who have been forcibly shipped there for stealing a piece of bread. Yeah. And are now engaged in a monstrous battle to genocide the oldest culture in the world. Uh-huh. And so it is a very relative formalization of history that is absolutely not universal in any way, shape or form. And as soon as you step outside of the European context and be like, hey, cool, wasn't it cool to be a man in France? And then it suddenly becomes actually the Dark Ages in Australia were probably 1700. Yeah. Um, when knowledge was being eradicated and ideas of um, homogenous thought were being imposed upon cultures. And if you wanted to say, when is the darkest age in Australian history or when is the darkest age in, I don't know, Peruvian history, you're going to say probably around about 1432. (laughs) (laughs) Uh And these, this idea of a dark age is one really specifically intellectual and does not take into account that life was fine for most part. Yeah. And that actual dark ages have existed and they've largely been perpetrated by the Europeans. And if bringing a light age, if an enlightenment is about rediscovering knowledge that was lost, like rediscovering ancient Roman philosophy and whatever, then you also have to look at what we have done to then recover different bits of knowledge that were lost and what knowledge was lost by the process of enlightenment. Because what I always think about is like, I mean, if we talk about, you know, colonization, that is ongoing work, right? Like there are, there's a really good episode of The Illusionist talking about the words that were kind of lost from Te Reo Maori because of colonization and missionary work and like how you rebuild the pre-colonial understanding of queer identities when, when you have gone through a genocide and a cultural genocide, which is really, really interesting. And, but it sort of like illustrates how difficult it is to reconstruct lost knowledge yeah. and how when do you decide when that process has happened. But also 
in terms of sort of the Reformation and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, what I always think of is the, what do you call it, the side effect of the Reformation. And like, I'm never going to defend the Catholic Church, obviously, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm never going to defend any massive religious organization as someone who grew up within one. But there there was infrastructure within that system for caring for the poor. And when the Reformation happened, that disappeared and there was no replacement for for a really long time and the replacement was then poor houses and workhouses and all of that stuff so like getting rid of the oppressive you know quote-unquote repressive church then meant that a whole lot of stuff fell through the cracks for a really long time and the enlightenment bros didn't do anything about that no (laughs) like and they but and i think this is a common thing like when whenever we look at a system and we think we can improve it there's so much more going on than we're aware of and I don't think we ever really learned that lesson. That, no. That you can't just make massive change without there being casualties and you have to be looking for those casualties so you can redress them as soon as possible. And I feel like a lot of this as an intellectual movement just didn't concern <laughs> itself with that at all. It did not concern itself at all, largely because most of these guys were things like barons and marquesses <laughs> yeah. and considered the people that served them to not just literally not be as good as them and to only be 50 percent people and they were interested in themselves rather than anything else and they certainly although voltaire did write a lot about abolition and did not love slavery he Mm -hmm. was still not like the best guy in the world yeah and you also have to think about like when they're reconstructing roman knowledge they are deliberately leaving out an awful lot like there's a reason that we only have like one female Roman poet whose work was accidentally preserved because people thought that they were part of a collection by Tibullus. And so Sulpicius poems are just basically exist by accident. And they only preserved the knowledge that they, in which they saw themselves. They saw themselves yeah. in, in the Ciceros and Senecas and, and things like that and did not see themselves in, in other forms. And so they did not promote them as as being interesting and then you get the the image of rome that you're constantly battling on tiktok that rome is this place of white men in white togas who are all mm-hmm. thinking big thoughts yeah. and women were being killed and locked in cupboards and that everything else was and that eradicates slavery from the entire picture and which imagines rome as a as a glorious period of unqualified goodness rather than a place of nightmares and horrors. (laughs) (laughs) Which brings us, I suppose, to the question, did people in the quote-unquote Dark Ages, medieval uh, European Dark Ages, consider themselves to be in a time of darkness and misery? And the answer to that is pretty much emphatically no. Not only that, a lot of Christian periodization, like so when medieval writers are writing about their own histories, they consider the period from the legalization of Christianity in 312 to be the beginning of the age of light and Mm -hmm. the age at which the Christian light finally overcame Europe, freed everybody from the barbarous age of paganism. They feel sorry for people like Cicero and Virgil, who, you know, appears in, I don't know if you've ever read Dante, but like that idea that Cicero, people like Cicero and Virgil and the great thinkers of the ancient world are like in a kind of special bit of paradise. 
mm-hmm. like in a walled garden inside heaven because they were good because obviously they wrote so well but because they didn't know that jesus existed because they were born yeah. before him so therefore because they could never have the opportunity to be saved they can't go into proper heaven but they're allowed to go into like mini heaven they don't have to go to hell yeah exactly Mm. because had they known then they definitely would have converted they wouldn't (laughs) but had they known then they definitely would have been christian but they were and they pity people like that for not being able to enter heaven because they didn't didn't live during the time of of christian light Mm -hmm. they don't describe themselves ever even in you know you go back to the 7th 8th century once you've got through the kind of 20 year period where people are bitching about the fall of Rome and the sack of Rome specifically you find that people talk about themselves as continuations of the greatness of Rome they absolutely not there are no real narratives of decline or of, of fall but just fragmented continuations so byzantines absolutely consider themselves to be roman but the frankish chroniclers describe themselves as roman but christian roman so better and carolingians describe themselves as being roman the holy roman empire is called the roman empire because they think that they're the continuation of the roman empire <laughs> but better because it's holy yeah And Voltaire has this problem with the Holy Roman Empire who calls it neither holy nor Roman nor an empire when it is, and I will link to Eleanor's blog on this because she hates that. It clearly is holy. (laughs) It's run by the church. Clearly is Roman. It's got Rome in it. And it clearly is an empire because it's fucking massive. (laughs) But they consider themselves to be a better. When you read Augustine, who kind of develops this understanding of linear history running from the creation of man, he largely considers himself to be living in the glorious end of history because now Christ has come and everybody is converting to Christianity and it's fucking brilliant. Yeah. And that is largely how they consider themselves. So there's a a guy in the court of Charlemagne who says, which is the 8th century, very much in that period of, um, so 700s, very much in that period of the mod times, talks about Charlemagne beaming out rays of all learning that knew and in part unknown before this barbarous age. And everybody is writing, because they're writing liturgies, they're writing exegeses, they're writing theology, they're writing canon law, which they think is amazing. Like the mm-hmm. application of theology to law is considered to be brilliant thinking. Their poetry, their chronicles of Charlemagne and all the rest, for through the Christian Catholic lens, as far as they're concerned, for the most part, they consider themselves to be living in the best time because they're living in Christian times. Mm-hmm. And in 1932, a Catholic historian said to a Catholic, the dark ages are not dark as much as ages of dawn, for they witness the conversion of the West, the foundation of Christian civilization, and the creation of Christian art and Catholic liturgy. Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah. it all depends on whether you think that the church is good, basically. Uh-huh. Which is, I guess, fair. And like, yeah. everything is always staying the same. like there are changes and there are seasons and what we value by which I mean literally what we are willing to put money into changes but we are always looking back and saying this period was terrible and everyone and it was dumb and then this other period was nice and brilliant we should be trying to be that and it's just whatever we think those things are changes yeah basically the current context we're living in and our view of the world 
We're going to do it again. We're going to do it all again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like in another thousand years time, we'll think that something else is good and then something else is bad. And we'll be living in our water world with our gills and fighting over resources or whatever. And we'll think that something else is (laughs) good or bad or indifferent. And who knows where the Romans will stand in that. But any understanding of the Dark Ages is largely... Is, is always a reflection on the culture that is producing that understanding rather than an actual understanding of either the Romans or the period following yeah. the Roman Empire. Uh, is it would, be, it would be nice to develop a widespread cultural appreciation of literally any other ancient civilization <laughs> at some point. Wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, not for me, obviously. I just want to talk about the Romans. But for other people, I'm sure that would be brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also going to because I did not do a full-throated defense of the uh the dark ages as an era of scientific inquiry, which it to be fair also is just within different contexts. I'm going to recommend God's Philosophers, a book by James Hammam called How the Medieval World Lay the Foundations for Modern Science, which is a very good and The Light Ages by Seb Fork is also another very good one, which are good books about the kind of thinkers that actually do exist, often within a church context, but are thinking about big questions that you know, you don't have Voltaire without having Hildegard of Bingen. Mm-hmm. But there's a big gap in between them, but you need one in order to hit the domino to get to the next one, basically. And if you want to know more about those, the people who are doing what we would now, what would be called scientia um, in Latin, which just kind of means in- inquiry mm-hmm. and, and what becomes modern science, then both of those two books are very, very good. Nice. Yeah. Um, we we can put links to those I will. in the show notes as well. I did actually go and do all of the show notes the other day. So there are actually show notes up for all of the ones that I've oh, said. Oh, nice. Thank you. Because I hadn't done it for like five episodes, but they're there now. So and, and before I forget, the other thing that is also up is Oliver is doing an audience survey to find out who listens to us and it's yeah. to let people tell him what they think and if they have thoughts. So if you would like to tell people your thinky thoughts then you i will put a link to that also in the show notes and it will be on there so you can just click and do that and fill in a little form mm-hmm. and uh apparently so far almost everybody is a uh, is us janina it's women between the ages of 35 and 45 <laughs> great so hello that's, you that's quite frankly the only audience i want <laughs> i mean they're the best audience i mean the hello to everybody else who's not that uh, but and you know we if you're not that fill in the form you. and let us know that you exist but so far <laughs> we're talking to our little version i mean it's self-selecting right because yeah. that's the type of person who a listens and b can be bothered filling out a survey it's willing to fill out a form yeah 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 I do love filling which out is very, Which is very nice. I have to say, I do not. I would not have answered it. <laughs> <laughs> but please do. <laughs> please do. Yeah. And we will be back, the two of us, again, to talk about the Borgias next time. Yes. So we're still being medieval. We are... Question is from Loki Hammerschmidt, who I think we've asked a question, answered a question from before, because I seem to remember that being a great name. Uh, who just said, what is the history of the Borgia family? Why are they so infamous? And is that justified or is it just bad press? Which is a great, a great question. Going to be a fun question. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about poison rings and stuff. Oh, yeah. It's going to be great. Yeah. 
if anybody would like to ask us a question, Janina, where do they go? Oh, historyisexy.com. And there's a wee link that will send with a form that will yeah. come through to our email account. It does. Or you can, I mean, we're not, neither of us are active on Twitter anymore. So if you tweet us, we might not see it. And we are on Instagram though. So you can message us on Instagram. Instagram. But the, uh, the form on the website is probably the best way currently yeah. because the golden age of social media is behind us. Oh, the golden age of social media is behind us. We're in a dark age of social media now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, awful. But yeah, so until next time, Janina. Bye. Bye.